Welcome to the Girl Gang Conversations, a podcast that's all about connection, sisterhood, and having conversations that matter. I'm your host, Sarah Stars, and every week I speak to inspiring women about the nitty-gritty of how they live with passion and purpose. We dive deep into our journeys, the obstacles we've overcome, our dreams, what's working for us, and what isn't. We're totally honest about what we're learning, what our daily rituals look like, and what we're struggling with. We don't shy away from the hard stuff, and we really go into it all. Spirituality, personal development, magic, routines, career, friendship, relationships, sexuality, and so much more. The most powerful two words in the English language are, me too, and it's my hope that these conversations help us all feel less alone. This isn't about preachy self-help or self-improvement. It's about self-acceptance and talking about the things that matter to us. Hello, and welcome to The Girl Gang Conversations, episode 89. You can access all the show notes for this episode at Sarah Stars. That's S-T-A-R-R-S, sarahstars.com, slash podcast, slash 89. Today's interview is with Kirsten Hale, a.k.a. the crazy herbalist. Kirsten is a trauma-informed herbalist and witch working to unspell the patterns of personal and collective trauma. She talks regularly to plants, makes potions, and serves her kitties. She lives on the colonized territories of the Multnomah, Clackamas, and other indigenous peoples in Portland, Oregon, with two cats and a crow. In this episode, we talk about what trauma really is, the link between trauma and anti-oppression work, the roles that herbs can play in addressing anxiety, and trauma, and beginning your own relationship with herbs. The role that herbs can play in addressing anxiety and trauma, and beginning your own relationship with herbs. Hey, Kirsten, how are you today? I'm really great. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited. I find your work absolutely fascinating, and to get to hear more about your journey and everything that you're up to is really, really cool. Um, And so on the podcast, before we kind of dive into that, into your journey, into the work that you do and everything that you believe, um, I just love to talk about a typical day in your life. And I know that for most of us, that's kind of an oxymoron because every day can be quite different. But do you have any routines or rituals that anchor your days? Yeah, I was um, thinking about that this morning because um, I have two cats and um, they one of them sleeps with me and she's um she's just a rescue cat that's been through a lot and it's taken several years to acclimate her to touch um or you know based on her own sort of willingness to be touched i don't mean that i'm like forcing her into it but so she wakes me up pretty much every morning by like sitting on my face and trying to claw my eyeballs gently Uh, which is an invitation to be pet and to purr and for connection. And that has become such a restorative part of my own day. I almost, um, like, I've, I've come to sort of need and want that level of connection in the morning. And then I have another cat that sleeps in the other room. And so my morning is really around getting up and trying to connect with these furry little beasts and <laughs> get into my body and... Um, yeah, that really anchors me a lot in the morning because I, I have spent so much of my life sort of feeling disconnected. Mm-hmm. So to have, over the last year, really developed a routine that's about waking up and having, 
like deep connection sort of to these little beings um, has been really restorative and lovely. So I feel like when that happens in the morning, um, I sort of blossom into my day different than if I didn't get to like really connect and um, share purrs and cuddles and their little talkies at the birds outside the window and that kind of a thing. So it's pretty special. That's so sweet and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's only really happened over the last, like, six or seven months, and it's pretty much transformed what I sort of want, actually, in the mornings, um, which is connection. Mm. Yeah. And so I guess pulling things back to basics in a way, you know, and and focusing it on your work, what does it mean to be a trauma-informed herbalist? Ah, yeah. I think that that can mean different things to different people, um, different herbalists. It's becoming a little bit more um, talked about. There's other herbalists who are sort of like um, taking some of that on. Um, For me, the concept of being trauma-informed means that you can understand, you very much understand um, and look at your own work as somebody who's showing up to work with others as potentially harmful as realizing that you have the capacity to re-traumatize in the way that you shape your services, in your blind spots, um, in either miseducation or not understanding trauma. And um, for me, um, I'm very open about being a a survivor myself. Um, And so for me, it's very much about letting the survivor in me lead the way that I shape my services, the way that I serve others. and really understanding that ultimately, like, the person I'm working with is doing the hardest amount of work and that they, no matter what, get to lead the journey. I don't, in any moment, I think, um, outside of saying, here's maybe what I know about what might be happening or what herbs might be, how they might be able to work with this, for the most part, like, I watch and listen deeply, not only just what someone's saying, but like what feelings I'm getting from their body about what might be okay Um, and about how they might want to lead their own journey. Um, So somebody can be struggling with sleep that I know, like just for an example, someone might contact me and sleep might be something that they're struggling with, but it also might be at that point in time unsafe actually to try and reduce nervous system activity late at night because that could really induce flashbacks. It can induce, um, it can bring on greater experiences of the trauma. So a typical sort of trauma protocol would be to look at sleep as being so essential as a foundation of health and to maybe want to focus there. But in a trauma-informed practice, you're really looking at like, what things are showing up in the person's spirit and body that are actually survival mechanisms that we don't want to drop or mechanically manipulate with herbs in order to to push a person into what would look like a state of health. Because for a trauma survivor, just being able to be present and in our bodies is a state of health. And so that's a perfect place to start and not necessarily fixing sleep or, you know, fixing other things and and looking at those symptoms. Uh, So just a different approach. It's very much more client-centered and client-led than um, fixing symptoms, I guess. 
Yeah, and that seems like such an important kind of awareness to bring into any kind of helping work. And I think there is there is a certain uh, um, I don't know. There's will for will for ignorance, but like there can be a lot of helping professionals who don't necessarily have an awareness of how triggering their work can be and who might even blame the client if they are triggered and, and you know, trying to really force people to get beyond things in a way that's, that's not healthy. So that seems so, so important. And I'm curious to any way that you can speak about a little bit what that process is like when you're trying to obviously empower the client to find their own way through this process, you know, like you said, that maybe the dealing with sleep right away is not the right thing. Like, what does it look like to work with a client in a way that is trauma-informed and kind of um, client-led, I guess? Mm, That's a great question. Um, Yeah. I think, I guess to maybe just touch on what you just said about sort of some practitioners can get, like, Well, one of the things, the very first things that I teach when I talk to other herbalists or practitioners about being trauma-informed is that it's funny because I think people will show up to that kind of a class being like, oh, I'm going to learn about trauma. And actually, I'll spend the entire class pushing the practitioners closer to their own trauma Mm. and making it really, really clear that it is the lens that we're using uh, that will lead... um, that direction that the client sort of is going. So for me, that really looks like me utterly seeing everything that they're presenting with that is a struggle of believing that there's some purpose to it in the body. I, all information that a client offers is very, very good information and comes, comes into play. And I listen very intensely um, to the things that don't get said um, the places and the edges in the conversation that it doesn't go. Like I have these um, PDFs that a client can, um, it's an option, it's not a requirement that they can sort of journal with and fill out to sort of prep for the session about sleep and about digestion. And they're sort of separate little PDFs so nobody feels like they have to fill out, you know, all of them. And one of them is on pleasure. And Um, and pleasure being defined how they define it. But even if somebody doesn't identify as having trauma or specifically complex trauma, if they open the session with saying like, oh, I didn't do that one on pleasure or um, that was the one that was most challenging, I put that one away, I know in my body already that some type of systems have kind of settled in to where that flexibility and that movement into play and pleasure and surrender and joy has been restricted. And that's sort of like where people struggling with trauma live is in that real deep struggle to play or have pleasure or what have you. So I listen for very little cues that indicate to me where their organic boundaries are. And then my questions really sort of are more about, like, um, I'll ask questions sort of physiologically about what somebody's experiencing, and then I really listen for, do they really describe what's going on more in the, like, neuro-emotional? They're talking more about the, the largeness of anxiety. 
versus if somebody tells me, like, I have heart palpitations. Mm. Uh, I listen for these differences to really understand how somebody is conceptualizing and living in their own body. And I really just try to gather enough information to see where's a good starting point based on what they've identified as most important to them. So if they're saying what's most important to me is that I don't feel, like recently I was working with someone and they said, you know, I don't want to talk about my body. Like, I, I don't feel good talking about my body, but I feel despair. And so then I immediately reroute to what does despair mean to that person? What does it look to that person? And I start thinking more about plants as being relational and engaging than sort of forcing somebody to continue talking about their body. Because if they've identified that as not being safe, then I reroute immediately to where they're leading and where they're taking me on their journey. Mm. Um, so it requires a bit of surrendering on my part and absolutely not stepping into the session as like, I'm the expert that mm-hmm. you've come to see to fix. It's actually much more about like, I'm a partner in helping to midwife a connection to plants um, that might help get you closer to where you want to go and might increase connection and relational experience and limit some of the isolation we feel from the natural world. I love that phrase, midwifing a connection to plants. And I think it can be so hard to not show up as the expert when you know, you know, your ego mind or whatever is wanting to tell you, like, I have this answer and I want to give it to you. And you're having to kind of surrender to the fact that actually that's not the answer that they want or need right now. Totally. Beautiful. And so I guess pulling things back even further, because like you were mentioning, some people might not identify with having trauma. Um, Trauma became a really big kind of research focus for me last year as I was like working to understand some things that were going on in my body and then um, doing some research for a book that I want to write. And, you know, what is your understanding of what trauma is? Because I think a lot of people think that you have to have gone through something pretty like catastrophic, and that's true, obviously catastrophic and horrific incidents do cause trauma, um, but even, you know, like a child falling off a bike can cause trauma if their body isn't able to resolve that, uh, that experience in a way where the, the kind of emotion leaves their, their system. And so I'm curious, like, how would you define trauma or how do you understand trauma? Yeah, um, that's a, a beautiful question. And there's sort of like, I'm so grateful to the practitioners um, who do research in mental health work who are expanding those definitions so we can even understand how trauma isn't actually just one thing. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things that I think is an important aspect to understand about trauma versus being traumatized is that sort of research is really clear that a, an organism um, – And this is true sort of in the natural world, like um, an organism can experience something that is traumatic. And based on their ability to really fully be able to experience, process, and work through it after Mm -hmm. the event, that's what really leads to someone not being traumatized. Mm -hmm. So not everybody who experiences trauma, which we could define as an event that inherently was was greater than what the system could cope with or process in the moment. It's something that overwhelms. There's an element to it that is 
um, creating some level of powerlessness, whether it's in the body, um, such as like you mentioned, falling off a bike, right? Like there's a, a moment that sort of when that happens, your world shifts because you realize that like you aren't actually the one in control all the time. You're coming into contact with other forces that might sort of rip you off the bike and, you know, the physicality of, of touching pavement and things like that, right? So there's, it's a full system experience of um, sensory and um, neuro-emotional, physical, you know, something's happening that's overwhelming the system. But trauma can happen and not necessarily become the residual experience of being traumatized. And in order for that traumatized thing, experience not to set in, you really need to have sort of like all systems met and being able to be restored. You know, there's there's connection, there's the ability to process the experience, there's the recovery from whatever wounding there was, you're able to openly acknowledge that wounding happened, right? So there's a big difference between a child falling off the bike and then somebody may be coming and gendering their pain, right? Boys mm -hmm. don't cry, um, you know, ways in which the response after the initial shattering event gets responded to, it's that window where the trauma can become traumatization. Mm -hmm. And so, so many folks um, really, there's a lot of places where so many folks are really struggling with traumatization, and that speaks to something after the trauma occurred did not fully allow that to recycle into becoming um, something that was meaningful or resilient or um, allowed the organism to really fully process that experience. And um, I'll say something that's also really important and, and I think much less known, although, because I had mentioned complex trauma, like basically neuroimaging and the kind of studies that sort of modern Western science is, is doing to understand the legacy of trauma uh, is showing very, very clearly that neglect, mm -hmm. gaslighting, emotional manipulation, that these things have profound physiological effects that are cumulative and that rival, if not at times surpass, the um, effects of sort of like a one-time event. And we're very much used to, we have more familiarity culturally with trauma about being sort of like one big thing happens, um, specifically sort of like somebody goes off to war and they come back and they have PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you develop during identity years, during like you're literally, you're being developed um, and travels through the times in which you're understanding identity and place in the world and um experiencing yourself as a, a, a phys, phys, physical being, like having a body, having needs, desires, etc. If you're doing that in either a personal home where there's consistent sort of neglect or manipulation of emotional needs as something that's bad and you need to become less seen and less embodied in order to survive, that that is substantial trauma and that 
deepens and spreads out into implications into sort of dominant cultural oppression, that if there are people having to navigate their lives, hiding who they are based on who they love or how they love, the color of their skin, um, via disability, um, all these ways that dominant culture asks people to hide or limit their needs or expression, that's also a form of complex trauma. And so, um, of course, because these things are so ingrained and they have like long-term power over dynamics, whether it's caregivers or dominant culture, um, there's really, really lasting effects. There's no ability to really restore and come back from. It's, it's not sort of like a one-time experience. It's, it's consistent lots of small, very violating experiences that get normalized. Yes, yeah, and thank you for sharing that, because I think that is one of the ways that trauma can be really misunderstood, and so someone might not even realize that, and this could be true in other situations as well, but might not realize that they are suffering with the the impacts of trauma and then are maybe drawn to some type of personal development or healing work for another reason and end up being re-traumatized and it can be so difficult to to understand what's going on in those situations. Yeah. Yes. And I was really interested in, you know, what you were just saying right now and something that you had said earlier in in kind of a pre-interview email about the the link between um, the work that you're doing as a trauma-informed herbalist and anti-oppression work. Could you just dive into that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, so what I sort of just said about, like, if we extend sort of our understanding of complex trauma, that the way that it's happening sort of maybe privately in a home to an individual, Mm -hmm. um, when we look at what's happening socioculturally, like what actually a dominant oppressive system is, um, if we apply that lens of trauma and specifically sort of complex trauma, then we realize that activism itself is a response to trauma and that the people who have been most consistently showing up to it, up to the trauma on um, these larger levels are the folks who are doing activism and organizing. Now, having been in that world as doing some of that work, often the models and, and what you're working with in terms of trying to respond to um, dominant cultural trauma, you end up setting up often sort of models that replicate some of those things, like uh, like domestic violence shelters can be some of the most like controlling places to be, um, ironically, right? Some of them are really progressive, but um, there's tons of power and control dynamics that are happening in places that folks who have experienced intimate partner violence end up going to sort of um, receive support or to escape some of that. Um, there's, there's lots of different layers about sort of the work being not perfect necessarily when you're working in a very traumatized system. And that's the same thing in, in many ways that's happening in an individual body is that when we go into survival mode, there's a restrictiveness that happens on the physiological and on the emotional level. Um, and a good example of this would be, and this is, I'm not probably 
going to be able to do this example that the amount of justice that it deserves but i think it's really one important to bring up is like you know here in the u.s we had this huge women's march well it was global i mean it it, it happened globally but um you had people calling for intersections for it not just to be a unilateral sort of like um, feminism is the only thing, but to really reflect a lot of what needs to be unearthed and um, liberated sort of in um, U.S. culture and politics, like that intersectional analysis of like um, having people of color and, and people of varying abilities um, show up and be part of the organizing. And when race in specific became part of the dialogue, you watched this dominant cultural movement primarily from white women really want to like narrow in and restrict the conversation to be only about female bodies and white feminist concerns. Mm -hmm. And there was this movement um, to be restrictive. And yet the women were calling for unity. They were saying that look at looking at other people's trauma was actually um, was was sort of forcing them to like um, redefine even and open up their experience. And in sort of like feminism itself, white feminism has been very much a response to like more like white hetero patriarchy and it's kind of refused and resisted opening up that dialogue and that's sort of being in survival mode that's the way that oppression works um, both on an individual level and on an, a cultural level is to sort of restrict the full breadth of what's possible and then people go into survival mode and in this case white women have more socio-political clout and power and sort of were willing to um, look at their own sort of narrowed lens and want to force other people into that. Yeah. And, and so that's sort of what kind of is happening on an individual body is this, how do I, it's this constant moving of trying to adapt to less access to resources, restoration, embodiment, safety, like that can be happening on an individual level. And that's exactly what's happening um, in the response to sort of dominant cultural oppression, because here too, we have someone who's defining who gets someone or like political systemic systems who are defining who gets to be safe, who gets to love who, who gets to show up um, uh, into their lives, who has access to resources, what those resources even look like and can be allowed to be. Like, it, it's impacting every level of people's lives. Um, yeah, and so I guess people could be listening to this and then be like, okay, well, where do the herbs come into your work? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as I realize I've, um, you know, taken us on this other path, which I think is really important, but... Um, because it, it all ties together. And I'm just curious, like, thinking about these really big um, socio-political issues and then also down to the very personal experiences of, of trauma and then just of everyday life. And then how, how do herbs and plants help us to address these issues? Yeah. So um, 
Lots of people write really beautiful, beautiful things about herbs for anxiety or herbs for trauma or, you know, people will work to sort of mm, bring herbs into some categorical support system to show up to these things. And I I think that that work is really, really important. Uh, I think because of the lens of me not really fully distinguishing between what's happening on an individual and a systemic level, um, I think that herbs can do really good things. Um, And I also don't, I see them more as palliative like, mm. ultimately, in a, a culture that is really, really working towards uh, the destruction of the earth, um, when I come together and we talk about herbs we, with somebody, um, particularly who's struggling with their own trauma, I'm really honest about the process being much bigger and refusing to look at the connection or the work with herbs as sort of Um, being the tool that addresses the symptoms. So herbs themselves are just beautiful, complex beings that can um, help reduce isolation, which is like such a core struggle when you have anxiety or trauma. Um, They can reduce that in in, in just like the most underutilized form of herbal medicine is just being able to sit with a plant, right, Um, and be next to them and listen and learn to them and experience that beauty. Um, But when we're talking about somebody taking herbs internally, there can be really beautiful work done physiologically to address um, adrenal burnout, to address shifts in the nervous system, dysregulation that's happening in the nervous system, to bring in additional nutrients and minerals to address physiological patterns um, and help enable the body move in the way it organically wants to, which is back to a state of health. Mm -hmm. Uh, Herbs have beautiful ways of doing this. And also, I think we have to be, to me, in combining that sort of anti-oppressive lens, I try to be really honest about the fact that until we're sort of in a culture that is out is not experiencing oppression that we are then somewhat limited even in our relationship to the plants but because we're consistently asking them to show up and do things in our bodies um, to offset larger patterns that really have nothing to do with them so what i mean by that is like imagine if we lived in a culture globally that as a species, we collectively were able to revere the plant, plants and the earth as living, intrinsically valuable systems. How I would work with herbs as an herbalist in that kind of setting to offset natural viruses or bacterial infections or, you know, traumas that happen based on falling off the bike or mm-hmm. what have you. That's so outside of the realm. That's like the the realm that we can dream of. But I feel very aware that there's ways that I'm working with plants to offset patterns and and nourish bodies that are struggling with oppressive systems in which I'm asking the plants to show up to work that like they didn't cause, if that makes sense. 
um, okay. and they, sh they can't be the only things that are seen as offsetting the system. So I, in my work, never say to someone, like, the herbs will fix this. Um, like, I never really claim that the herbs are just a substitute or a better thing than pharmaceutical support. Because when we're talking about working with them um, to shift big physiological patterns of trauma and we're focused on symptoms, often we're doing a very similar thing. Um, so there's different levels and ways of working with the plants. But I think it's fair to be really honest as contemporary herbalists working in systems of oppression that we're calling on the plants to do big work to help rectify those patterns. Mm, yeah, that's, I had never thought about that or heard someone explain that, but it makes so much sense because if the larger system that is causing the issue and the symptom stays the same, like you're, you're never going to, the, the herb isn't going to heal you because it's not going to be able to change the system and change the pattern that's causing the symptom and the issue in the first place. Yeah, mm. totally. There's an herbalist uh, named Sean Donahue who early on in my work um, had written a piece where he um, said, you know, ultimately, you know, he's in Canada where people, herbalists can actually sort of like write out more um, descriptive stuff. And I think it's this way sort of in the UK too, where you can write out more of a diagnosis type thing, whereas in the U.S. I'm limited by using any of that language, um, which I'm grateful for. But so he would literally, he said, like, I will literally write on somebody's diagnosis, capitalism, colonialism, <laughs> um, wow. you know, um, patriarchy. Like, like when we're really getting down to what yeah. people are struggling with, it's the inability to be fully themselves embodied in systems that allow for pleasure, restoration, safety, those kind of things. And so in that lens, you realize that the way that we're working with herbs is to facilitate more flexibility, fluidity, resilience, um, safety, um, capacity to resist either pathogens or um, stressors. Like herbs can do beautiful things to do that in a body. But that body is still walking around culturally being asked to perform the labor of their own safety or emotional work or um, restoration in greater capacities than the system should have to do. So talking more about your own journey with herbs, what drew you to this work or working with herbs in your own life in the first place? And what was that journey of, of becoming a herbalist? Yeah, um, you know, it's kind of funny because it like it's it, it's so winding. And, and now that I've been a plant person, I've, I, I'm able to look back and realize that I was always like I always would have been open to this way of interacting with the world. But, um, you know, I'm a I'm a survivor of complex trauma, um, multiple violations of my body, um, grew up in a really shifting and chaotic home environment. Um and I spent, you know, for sure through my 20s and even the first couple years of my 30s um, just in intense reactivity to all of that, um, trying to fix, feeling simultaneously that I 
needed to fix everything um, about me and that I was just utterly and inherently bad, which are some core ways that this trauma settles into the identity. And um, so my life was a lot about panic um, uh, and being really marginally housed and, and, and struggling, but at the same time, like doing lots of social justice work and going on my own journey of even discovering social justice uh, was a process that I didn't realize was so intimately tied to my trauma, but it wasn't really until um, my mid twenties that I even understood that I was like in a female or gendered body. Um, so there was this process of like, like, social justice sort of opening up and really me moving into that, but very much in that place of like, I'm doing this because it needs to be done, but I'm constantly in my own trauma. Mm -hmm. So I was doing like radical mental health work and I was doing other stuff, but like just suffering. And at the same time, I was like trying to figure out, is it magnesium? Is it vitamin D? Like I had this organic feeling that was just intuitive about not trusting the modern medical system, which I have some, um, I think they call it ideologic trauma or, you know, there's some word for it where it's like trauma that you received based on seeking care, particularly in medicine. And I had had that. I had been violated by a couple of practitioners. Um, and so I was just sort of refusing to use Western medicine. Um, I was in and out of therapy, uh, mostly trying to figure out what it was and, and why people go to this um, and just seeking so intensely help because I either had this intense level of hope that something else could happen and I could fix it and I was desperate to do that, whatever it was, or the other option for me was like utter despair and like not really wanting to be alive. And I would, I danced between those two extremes for um, probably the 15 years after leaving my house um, in my, in my teens. And so I had this natural inclination to like trust more, I guess, alternative or natural um, um, things to help what I was going through, but I couldn't quite figure out what the right things were. And as I started to work a little bit, as I started to come in to understand and have language around trauma based on things getting shared in social media and books I was finding in the library and research I was doing, um, I turned and I studied holistic nutrition but realized that there were still some really gaping holes in holistic nutrition. Like when I looked at like what was really happening for me in my body, it really wasn't about eating fermented vegetables. Like like in the the mindset of holistic nutrition, you look at that as the source or the sort of cure is like, you know, you're, you know, which we can do the same thing with, with herbs. Um, and I, I was like, there's something more. And uh, I ended up going to this class, this herbal class that um, my teacher who became my teacher of several years, um, I ended up going to a class that she was offering to the community. And it was like the first, time in my entire life I sat in a place and heard things that somehow made me know who I was and after taking a couple of classes I went on my very first hike which growing up and being in Southern California a majority of our surroundings is concrete and 
urban sprawl and suburban environments, um, not necessarily like wild spaces. And so I went on my first hike, and I'll never forget, like literally this moment changed every cell of my being because walking into this space, I had that moment where I looked down and I realized I knew who nasturtium was. I knew who pineapple weed was. I knew what nettles looked like. And there was something about realizing that I had been introduced to these beings and they weren't just like the big conglomerate of nature, quote unquote. <laughs> they weren't sort of just like a variance of green but were specific individual beings that had personalities and attributes and ways of defending and protecting themselves. And for the first time in my life as a survivor, I felt like I wasn't alone in the world. Um, and that happened while I was taking a solo like trip into nature and it was the most unalone I had ever, ever, ever felt. And it was in that moment that everything shifted for me and I kind of came to understand isolation as a perpetuation of trauma, um, hyper-individualization, the removal of us as organic, cyclical, seasonal beings into systems of like capitalism that are so rigid and refuse to be restorative and cyclical. All of that in that moment, like just, it was sort of like um, the lens, like the lens sort of changed or the fog dissipated. And I was like, oh, I exist and you exist. We are mutually existing. And from that moment on, I knew, like from that moment on, I was like, I'm a plant worker. And this will be one of my tools and modalities to show up to my community um, from this moment forward because these are living beings that I co-inhabit the planet with. And ultimately, I want to be in good relationship to the beings, human and non-human, that I co-inhabit this world with. And uh, that was it. I was just like, herb nerd, herb geek, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, you know, not when I was doing my nine to five, like, what can I download and learn, you know, about, about herbs, sort of like, um, I just, I haven't looked back since. That's so. such a magical story. And something that I was really curious to talk to you about, because it seems like your journey with plants started really organically. Um, and like you said, there's a lot of articles like maybe suggesting like here are some herbs you could work with to to manage anxiety or to to do this or to do that. But then also um, herbs can be a really powerful and potent medicine. And there's often warnings about you know consulting with a, a healthcare professional before starting certain herbs, and especially like if you're pregnant or lactating, obviously that becomes yes. um, or if you're on medications becomes even kind of more of a, a concern. And so I'm yeah. curious, and, and I'm not exactly sure how to phrase this, but I think you'll get what I'm saying. Like, how much do we need to consult with a trained herbalist to start working with specific plants? And how much can we self-educate and experiment with herbalism ourselves? And again, yeah. that's going to depend on the person, but I guess what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to actually just even say thank you for asking that question because um, 
it's one that I literally actually updated. Um, it's not up yet, but like a, a page on my on my website where I'm going to say like I'm going to back off for a few minutes of doing consultations because there's information exactly addressing that that I want to get out and make accessible specifically to folks who are struggling with trauma and who are really looking for support. But for everybody, like one of the things that that is is sort of symptomatic of this. Um, our, our evolution into like post enlightenment world, which can't be separated from sort of um, the demonization of, of witches and healers and people who work with plants. Um, like science is amazing, right? To know that like you can put a heart cell in a petri dish and another heart cell in another petri dish, and then when you slide the petri dishes together, they will entrain and start beating together, like okay, that is beautiful. Like, how exciting is it that we get to know things about our bodies in this way? But science, because it's been put up on sort of like the pedestal of the ultimate way to access reality, which it has, science approaches its work through the very dominant cultural lenses that it's formed in. So reductivity, patriarchy, um, et cetera, et cetera. Science can really limit our access to knowledge, actually, and even refuse to acknowledge that there's multiple ways of, of, of knowing things, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, we, we, we have these, like, so in dominant Western herbalism, it's sort of, you know, exciting to learn about the phytochemistry and the big words and the, and the things that, that herbs can do, and yet folks who live with those plants and know the story of those plants can tell you very similar things. They just use a different language and they received that knowledge through like hundreds of years of actually talking to the plant. Um, so lots of the warnings that you see about science have um, really problematic elements when it comes to understanding what that means for herbs. So for example, there's an American herb that an herbalist Jim McDonald talks about called sweet flag or calamus. Well, calamus has some phytochemistry in it that when you quantify, when you isolate that chemistry out of the plant, turn it into what's almost like an essential oil, right? Hundreds of times stronger than it would ever actually be in the plant itself. And then inject that into a rat and the rat grows tumors, then science can stamp a label onto that that says this plant is carcinogenic. Mm -hmm. Now, no way in the history of, of people and plants in relationship to that specific plant has have we had to worry about it being a carcinogen. That is a modern tool, way that um, science will approach plants. And there is tons of, like, animal um, harm being done to get this kind of information, right, during pregnancy, specifically because the people doing the scientific research on them haven't funded a bunch of trial studies about what they do in human bodies during pregnancy, which are very complicated trials, of course, as you can imagine, to try to do. And they don't also then want to have open or potentiality for lawsuits should something happen to somebody while they're pregnant. So the label not safe for mm -hmm. use during pregnancy is much more an indication of we don't really know and we don't want to deal with it. Often, than it actually not being safe during yeah. pregnancy. Um, 
Well, and also because you can't, it's really hard to do pregnancy trials, obviously, because you have to say, here's this thing that we don't know whether it's safe or not, and we're going to, to get it past an ethics board with pregnant women. Right. And 99 point. And they're not invested in it. Yeah, like 99 point, you know, 99% of the people who are actually doing these clinical scientific trials aren't herbalists and aren't actually working with or using the plant in ways that an herbalist would actually connect somebody or at therapeutic dosages that an herbalist would actually do with somebody with the plant. Um, So there are herbs, it's specifically over in the UK. See, here in the US, we're flying under the radar a little bit, and there's not too many herbs that are actually illegal. Now, that's changing um, quickly. Uh, based on lobbying efforts and et cetera. But my understanding when I talk to clients that are in um, either countries in the UK or Australia, like the level herbalists there fought for like legitimate recognition um, through licensing. You mentioned sort of pregnancy. Well, most herbs are actually identifying to be seen as serious practitioners and not just sort of like woo-woo witchies. but in so doing, then the same bureaucracy that governs sort of allopathic medicine then sort of restricts and governs herbal medicine. And there's like very safe, lovely herbs that are like illegal. Like I was just speaking to someone in Belgium, and in Belgium, skullcap is illegal, which skullcap, there is a, is a U.S. plant, but like it's a gentle, loving nervine that will actually help restore the nervous system. So... Um, so I guess to get back to your original question where fruit would be for people listening and not just me getting on my herbal soapbox, um, I think that good research into what herbs you want to use, you can pretty much guarantee that culinary uses, herbs, spices and things like this, these are very safe across the board herbs. And I think there's very much benefit to finding, working with a practitioner who can do some of those introductions. But more and more, I would really, really encourage anyone who feels like, I want to experiment, I want to play with herbs, to seek out a local herbalist who's doing plant walks. There are often Mm -hmm. herbalists who will do free plant walks just to sort of introduce themselves to the community, to connect in ways and go to events um, or to little classes like how to make lotions, um, how to make herbal vinegars, to see that as a really, really often more efficient way to get in touch with the herbs than all the Googling. Like Googling can take us into a bazillion places. Internet research has both really good information on it and really, really, really terrible and problematic information on it. Right. Yeah, And so I would encourage anyone and everyone to follow a calling or to follow a curiosity about um, using herbs and to do so a little bit fearlessly. But I would say that, that calling on somebody who's been doing some of that work to help facilitate those introductions can be far more efficient and even less stressful than the eight hours you can spend trying to figure out, can I or can't I take nettles? Because mm-hmm. 80 blog posts say that they're perfectly safe, and one blog post says, like, don't take this while you're pregnant, or this might dry you up, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because when we're dealing with, the interesting thing is, like, with pharmaceuticals, 
they can write off individual variances as side effects. But good herbalism is always taking into account that there's a variable component to human bodies, which aren't a static thing. Human bodies look different not only throughout our lives, but, I mean, you and I would have very different responses to the very same herb just based on our body types and what we really need. And then, you know, there's the component of the the complexity of the plant, too. So um, herbalists are doing some of that work of, like, holding all of that complexity and trying to midwife those connections. And um, so I, I absolutely encourage self-study and self-experimentation and with sort of like, I guess, good research. But um, I think that if, if you have the means or the resources, allowing someone to facilitate that introduction can save a lot of stress and time. Um, that makes so much sense to me too. Like just for even like, you know, like you mentioned that one article that then puts this trickle of doubt in your mind and so that, that, that herbalist can explain like, well, you know, why they're, why they're giving that caution is because people in this sort of, sort of circumstance might have this kind of reaction or there was this kind of like very unscientific study or whatever it is. Like they'll have yeah. that knowledge that you don't have to then have this flicker of doubt in your mind of like, is this okay or is it not? And like Especially yeah. if you're thinking about hurting your unborn baby, like no one needs to think about that. Yeah, and can I add just like a little extra caveat for like trauma survivors? Yeah, of course. So one of the things that I think is, is sort of central to my work right now in both speaking to other herbalists and then, um, I mean, I have the like supreme honor and opportunity that in May I'm actually going to, and June, I'm going to actually be in... Ireland and England. I'm going to be actually doing some conference teaching that I was invited to come teach at. And um, like, you know, for me, that's sort of a dream come true because, you know, like the history I just shared, it's like I never thought I would get to do these things. So anyways, like I'm just going to celebrate that moment um, a little bit right now. Um, But the crux of one of the things that I'm going to be bringing forward, because I'm going to be speaking to practitioners. Um, not just folks who are, like, really excited about herbs, but people who are actual practi- practitioners, like, that's the way they're showing up mm-hmm. to other people. And the crux of one of the things that I'm going to talk about is that with trauma, the symptoms that are showing up um, can often be expression of, of things that have kept them safe in the past. Mm. Um and so, like, speaking to anyone who might be listening who's a trauma survivor who might want to work with herbs, it's very, very, very possible, um, and almost in a trauma-informed practice should be expected, that when herbs work, they can work, but if I physiologically had most of my violations done um, in, at the nighttime, or I was shamed during times that I felt relaxed or I was being playful or I was open and seeking connection, if that's sort of where some of my violations happened, then the physiology appropriately to deal with that would redefine relaxation, deep sleep, pleasure, play, trust, these things on the most physiological level as unsafe. So here somebody goes to an herbalist and says, I can't relax, like I can't sleep. They, they, like here's these expressions of things that um, like 
the patterns have outdone how like their usefulness, right? So they're no longer helpful patterns, but the body may not know that. So an herbalist can give somebody sleepy type herbs or nervines, um, herbs that sort of reduce the, the activity in the nervous system. And that can actually take the body for somebody who has trauma still living in the body and still active, that can take somebody actually to a physiological place that is identical from the body's perspective of where I will be traumatized. Right. And so my focus on some of my work with talking to other herbalists is that absolutely these paradoxical reactions tell us really important things about this, what the body perceives as safe and that we need to trust that we need to absolutely honor um, and, and work with that. And so anyone who's listening who might have tried, like, you know, I took these herbs to help my anxiety and I actually got anxiety. Or I took this herb that says that it's like, it's for the heart and it's so beautiful. Like everyone talks about Hawthorne and it's this amazing, powerful plant magic spirit gateway to the other world, heart nourishing herb. And like, if it's unsafe, actually, for me to feel the level of grief in, that's existing in my heart, then that plant will actually stimulate heart palpitations, anxiety, dissociation, um, because the human system itself might not be able in that moment to do what the plant is asking or introducing the body to. And I, I think that's important for trauma survivors to know, because specifically if you're going to an herbalist who has never, like, been exposed to that idea or has never seen those reactions or what have you. Like, I don't want to downplay the, like, that. that's a very real thing because we're just learning how to actually talk about deep systemic trauma um, as a culture or, or as practitioners. So I would just put that caveat for trauma survivors to trust their own organic responses to herbs. And so even if, like, somebody said, this is the most beautiful herb, it's going to help you sleep or blah, 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 and you feel the love that the practitioner has for that herb, if that's not what you experience, that's not a problem with you. That's mm. a weird thing. And I think that that has to be named and said for trauma survivors because, of course, if I love the herbalist and they tell me this beautiful thing and then I go home and I take the formula that is for anxiety and I end up having massive panic attacks and dissociating for two days, then I'm going to assume it's me. The herbalist did beautiful work, but look, here I am. I'm bad. And right. I want to negate that myth. I want to negate that experience for people. Yeah. And in, in a way, like, that can be a good um, uh, reason to work with a practitioner, but, like, being really particular about a practitioner because someone like you could help, I'd, I'd imagine, help a client navigate what that response was like and then interpret perhaps I mean and perhaps your process already would have interpreted that that was not some place they were ready to go and and thus that herb wouldn't have been suggested but I think if you were to read an article on the internet and then and then take that herb and then have that reaction like you'd be really alone and lost in it and I think that you know I, I haven't worked with a herbalist specifically but working with a nutritionist um she was able to help me make sense of like some of the weird reactions my body seemed to be having because she was able to show me like here's how these systems are related and and how this one thing is causing a domino effect because we're not ready to actually go to that place yet and heal that you know like and there's things that I just wouldn't have understood and would have just been really frustrated and like you said felt like broken and and it's all kind of hopeless kind of thing 
Yeah. Yeah. And like that, that is good work because ultimately it's the context and it's that like knowing how the body works or, or being able to like be like, oh, here's what's happening for me. And, and it's a valid thing that's happening. It's not once again a sign that I'm broken. Um, I think that's where some beautiful work can get done. Yeah. So as we wrap up, I have two questions that I like to ask everyone. And the first is, when it comes to your own personal development, what are you working on learning or implementing? Ooh. Yeah. So I guess, like, there's two places that my brain went. One feels very safe and one feels very sort of, like, um a little bit more scary to admit. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm in my first year of being an entrepreneur, so I'm, I'm learning actually how to like structure workflow and like, um, I don't know, I guess for the first time in my life show up to believing like, oh, I get to dictate my work. Like I'm, I'm my own boss. Right. And mm-hmm. the pitfalls and struggles can that can be, cause then like, you know, if you're mad at your boss, it's like you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but I think, Specifically, you know, I have a history of doing um, activist work, but specifically since this, my, the U.S. has decided to elect um, the leader that we have currently um, that is so violent and problematic for so many folks, um, my deep, deep, work right now is showing up to what it means to be somebody um, who both sort of promises potentiality to individuals via herbalism and, you know, like addressing sort of certain symptoms, but like, what is my role? What is my responsibility as somebody who's unjustly systemically privileged by having white skin in this Mm. country? Um, And is in a country that my ancestors colonized. Um, what does it mean for me to actually be working with plants on this continent? What is my responsibility? Um, what actually is outside of just understanding what oppression is? What is my responsibility to actually help tear that system down? And that question has infiltrated like every cell of my being and I think is just deeply churning and I don't have answers. I, I, the answers I think were easily out there. I think more people would know how to be dismantling some of this, but um, I feel like I can't show up to individuals and individual bodies without asking these larger questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I've been trying to gather, I've been, tr- I've been really trying to center voices of color in terms of um, their activist work and what they say the leading and the movement forward is, um, knowing that I've been enculturated to, like, keep the system going as it is in the ways that it privileges me. So um, I feel like I'm trying to conceptualize, like, what actually does breaking the system down look like? What do healthy, restorative, good relationships look like, both on the individual level and the systemic level? And um, Those yeah. are big, important questions. Yeah. Yeah, and I wish they had much more clearer answers. Yeah. 
Um, and so this one could be, you know, it could be related to herbs or not. It could be serious or it could be frivolous. What's one thing that you're obsessed with these days that's making your life better? Oh, oh, what a great question. That's like that pleasure play kind of question. Um, I am obsessed. Okay. I am obsessed with trying to learn, um, well, spring. Okay. That would be the first answer. Mm -hmm. Like winter is receding and I'm watching buds and springs and these kind of stuff happen. But I'm currently designing um, a deck of cards uh, that can be used as a tool to, to look at um, the, the very sort of like, like the way patterns show up in complex trauma. And in order to bring this deck to life, I'm trying to learn um, online photo editing tools mm-hmm. and um, it's so outside of my realm but there's this sort of like very like like my Leo rising is kind of like I will master this I will learn this kind of a thing and so um, learning to edit and manipulate photos in between client sessions uh, has been sort of the secret like um, gateway drug to all of the possibilities that can happen um, in the creative process and um, surrendering to some of that creative process has been um, really pleasurable. Very cool. And I'm so excited yeah. to hear that that deck is coming to life. Um, as we wrap up, what is the best people for any, best way for anyone who feels drawn to you to, you know, how can they work with you or support your work? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, my website is crazyherbalist.com. And um, I primarily um, sort of send out often on newsletters um, when I have something new to offer, whether it's a new potion or a new writing, or I'll be offering um, donation-based opportunities to get a reading from the deck before it becomes finalized um, Mm. to folks on my newsletter. Uh, So that's, I feel like, the most um, stable and, I guess, intimate um, place to sort of find me or to connect and see what's going on. Uh, I'm kind of terrible at social media, actually. I cannot keep up. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It really is. And so I have my moments of being like, yes, I have space for Instagram. But secretly, like, I just, I feel so really honored whenever someone says, like, I, for whatever reason, am going to give you my email address to tell me stuff. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I feel like that's a really special place where I, I like to send out, like, this is what I have to offer. This is this plant that I've written about, or this is um, um, an offering that's really just for folks on my newsletter because I, I just feel special um, that people want to stay in touch. Well, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure talking with you today. Yeah, such beautiful questions, and thank you so much for giving me the space and the opportunity to talk about my work and connect with um, your followers. Thank you. You can find the show notes for this episode at sarahstars.com slash podcast slash 89. Did you know that you can support the Girl Gang conversations on Patreon? Other crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter raise money for a single big event. But Patreon is designed for creators who put out smaller, consistent work, like bloggers and podcasters. Patrons of this podcast get access to an exclusive online clubhouse with content that's never been released anywhere else, special bonus episodes, Q&A sessions, and lots of really cool goodies. There are awesome interviews, a 40-day e-course about self-love, and meditations that you'll get access to as soon as you make your first pledge. 
You're in charge of how much you pledge each month, and you're welcome to cancel your patronage whenever you want. Check it out at patreon.com sarahstars. And if you want somewhere to discuss everything that you've heard about in this episode, please join us in Girl Gang HQ, our private Facebook group. Our next interview is with Claire Berry. Claire is a Londoner, writer, and founder of Urban Curiosity, a creativity and wellness company that helps busy people slow down and see things differently. Claire writes about creativity and human connection in the digital world and London in the real one. She leads international retreats and urban curiosity workshops in her hometown. These two-hour sessions are part digital detox, part creativity class, on foot. By changing her lifestyle after experiencing burnout, Claire fell back in love with London and found solace within the hustle and bustle of the big city. I love talking to her about ideas for navigating a busy, overwhelming city in a slower, more mindful way, being mindful of when and how we use our smartphones, and our periods of consuming information versus periods of creation. Just a reminder that these episodes have been pre-recorded before my maternity leave and that we're now on a bi-weekly publishing schedule. Until then... Grab your girl gang and have a conversation that matters.